0: Good morning, folks. Let's get to it. Lord, we thank you for the morning. Love just the idea, Lord, that uh, we can set aside time to, to come and early ponder your word. How often, Lord, I'd like you to spend the day just considering what your word has to say and, and hear the stories of how you've changed people's lives, how hearts have been touched, how people now walk differently. It's good to see your goodness in the world, Lord, because we live in a world that's so easy to see only the bad, and yet, Lord, you allow all this to exist for a purpose, and the purpose is, first and foremost, to demonstrate to us what love is. We struggle this summer, Lord, and even just our preaching and, and saying to the world what love is. We want so badly to get that message across, and yet, Lord, you've been shouting it from rooftop to rooftop, throughout all the heavens. You've demonstrated it so perfectly in your Son, and yet we live in a world that would just as soon not look. Help us to not be that way, Lord. Help us to turn and see what is real, to have hearts that are of flesh that will feel and no pain, and yet, Lord, can feel the, the joy of what real love is. Help us not to delude ourselves and harden our hearts and have those hearts of stone or hearts that are just deluded through culture and drugs and everything else, Father. Help us to to stay alive. And yet, when we feel the pain, help us to find the comfort in you. Help us to find you now in the scriptures as we read. In Jesus' name, Amen. 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 Now, uh, the format I was using in trying to talk about the first three uh, covenants, which I was going to cover all three last week, you noticed I didn't do very well. Uh, I'm getting bogged down in the minutiae of it, and the idea of this was to try and give you an overview of the covenants. And for all the uh, folks who didn't get the handout last week dealing with the Noahic or the Abrahamic. Abrahamic or the Mosaic Covenant. I do have those handouts, but I changed the format, and that's what you have in front of you now, is in that format where you have the arrow, the idea of watching the, the flow of the covenants, how they work, and realize that one builds on another on another. One of the basis of our faith is the idea that God's revelation has been progressive and has a purpose. There are many who would tell you that all... Oh, God tried something, it didn't work. So God had to try something new and that didn't work. And So he came up with another plan and this and that. Well, I've never quite understood how your concept of God can be that he makes so many mistakes. Or that he does not know what is going to happen. He's never caught by surprise, folks. And yet, in that... He puts us in an environment, in a world in which you still have the ability to choose. Now, I don't know about you, but anybody who's ever, you know, desired to be a Frankenstein or, or design their own software to be able to do anything and anywhere and on and on and on, you know, there's a lot of things you can design, but how do you design a world that is, is, is uh, perfectly sustaining in keeping itself and yet is built around the idea that it will glorify you and yet your chief crown of creation, man has the ability to just act any way he wants how does that work? when when the chief attribute of you as an existing being is love why would you create folks who can take such a beautiful concept and completely corrupt it and define love as nothing more than self-gratification a matter of just satisfying one's being which in essence is the exact opposite of what love is so with that we chose to look at the covenants and in the covenants we stuck to what is biblically defined that way we did not go into the concept of covenant that is laid on the church and in that handout we discussed um, the handout with the arrows you'll notice on the first page I list the covenants and they're all collapsing in one is defined by the other one now we have to start with creation even though creation isn't a covenant but it's real hard to have a covenant over something which is dealing with something material something very tangible without creation to begin with right so I threw creation in there. Now last week we dealt with the Noah covenant, which you'll notice is, uh, I should get it out so I can refer to the colors, huh? which is, I thought I lost my hand there, hang on, hang on. which is there in the gray, and in the gray, what we noticed last week about the uh, covenant made with Noah, is that it is a universal covenant in which God puts all the pressure on Himself. Even down to the, si- uh, the fact that the sign given was not for man, it was for God's re- uh, reminding, as if He needs it. But when you realize, when God takes upon Himself such attributes, such as um, whenever God talks about you know, the strength of His arm, or anything that's anthropomorphic, anything that you know, would describe what we as men would do, There's a purpose behind it. So why would God put himself in such a position as to lay a covenant that he is the only one responsible for? Look at Tim's on it, you know? I love it. With that, we then move to the Abrahamic covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant, last week when we first talked about it, what I have listed here that from one man will come a nation unto God, and it will be blessing a blessing to all others. I, I really simplified it. Now, last week I gave you a challenge, and if you look at the bottom of that first page, you know, the top part I kind of give a description, lower part I give the scriptures. In the green there for the Abrahamic covenant, we had looked at chapter 12, which is where the promise is first given, the idea that, you know, you're going to leave Ur of the Chaldees and all this, and we're going to give you... Uh, we are. God's going to give you land, seed, blessing. But then we went to Genesis 15 and 17. We really didn't get much to 17. And the reason why those two are in bold is in the green there, where you have chapter 12, 18, and 22, those do not specifically lay out the covenant, but a lot of the blessings or the promises that went along with it that helped define it. But it is literally in chapter 15 and chapter 17. Now, I gave you a challenge last week. We first went to, and let's turn there, to Genesis 15. Now, you don't have to be much of a scholar of the New Testament to know that the promise given to Abraham is quite essential in New Testament theology. The promise given of a seed is very, very important, and Paul spends especially a lot of time on it. Now chapter 15, I laid two things on you last, last week before we left, and one was the fact that chapter 15 does not relate two stories, it relates one story. Even though when you read through it, you have verses 1-5 telling you the story, And then the story is repeated again in verses 7 to the end of the chapter. In the middle of those two stories given, there is a narrative's note. Now, who would have been the narrator, the teller of the story, who would have added this note? Who wrote Genesis? Moses Moses did. Good, good, Good to know that. <laughs> How do we know Moses wrote the book of Genesis? The first five books he wrote. The first five books he wrote. All of the first five books? Probably not. <laughs> well, when you get to the end of Deuteronomy and he's dying, it's kind of hard to figure <laughs> yeah, that he did that. But that's okay. That's right. They're called the Mosaic books. Yes, they are. The, the Torah, yeah. yes, or um, the Pentateuch, quite often it's referred to. Now, Before the time of Moses, you had no revealed scriptures, did you? Ah, very interesting. That's why on this handout, if you go to page 3, I did mention something. There's there's two little footnotes here that I have. And the the last footnote I'm dealing with is progression, Progression of Revelation Attested to by Signs and Wonders. Now, we live in a time in which a lot of people want to define anything spiritual as something that is, you know, uh, attested to by some kind of weird phenomenon. It could be healings, it can be gas turned into water, turned into gasoline, it could be 20 bucks that just appears on your, your coffee, you know, table, it could be certain languages that you speak on and on and on they go to certain scriptures like in Hebrews where it says that Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, today and forever and say well if Jesus acted in such a way as far as performing miracles in the past he should be performing them now. But historically when you go through scripture you find that there are only four periods of time in which signs and wonders are a norm. That they, they are there for a witness, for a purpose. Now God can do whatever He wants to do at any time, and God is a miraculous God in providing much. All through scriptures, you have people who are healed by prayer. You have things that that uh, uh, God provides uh, provisions where there were none, on and on and on. And we'll, we'll talk about those in a little bit. But what I'm talking about is periods of time in which signs and wonders seem to be the norm. And the purpose of it is, is hey, pay attention to what's going on. Now, scripturally, before the time of Moses, you did not have a lot of signs and wonders going on. Now, did you have miraculous things going on? If I was Enoch, I would have a story to tell, wouldn't I? I mean, can you imagine? What, what was it like to walk with God and to, to be so into that union that you just kept going and you went home with Him? What a, what a story! Now, why is that recorded here? Well, I think one of the reasons it's recorded here is don't ever limit your relationship with God. Simply because Martin Luther or someone else like that never, you know, just translated and went to heaven, right? I mean, one of these days, Jack ain't going to be here because I know Jack, in the way that he just wants to pursue his God... It's not going to be quite the same way as what it was with Enoch. I pictured the two of them walking in together. Jack's a lot like me. He's going to be hanging on to one leg and just being dragged in. <laughs> He's going to be sitting there saying, uh uh-uh, I ain't going home without me. you know. But, I love you, Jack. I, I love beating up this guy. God, i beat this guy. But, the reason why I mention this is, during that time of Moses, you have signs and wonders like you can't believe. And it boils down to simple things, a uh, staff that turns into a snake, uh, uh, all, all the plagues that happen in Egypt, strike a rock and water comes out, um, get those quails to fly in, just exactly strike high, you know, I mean, come on, that, talk about miracles, this is awesome, right? All these things happen, well, why? God had something to say. And in that, he gives us the word in the first five books of the Bible. Chances are, the book of Job also. All right, and we start that norm, and even under Joshua, it continues. And under Joshua, we have what starts out as the uh, the former prophets, the times of judges, and other things. It sets up an established order in which God is going to speak. Now, later on, when you have the latter prophets coming, right? This is after Israel has been up and going for a while and it just really isn't quite doing too well. They've been given the the covenant with Noah. They've been given the Abrahamic covenant. They've been given the Mosaic covenant, the priestly covenant, and the uh, Deuteronomic covenant. And in that, they're not doing very well. So you have from Elijah and Elisha a time in which they keep calling the people back. Come back to God. Come back to Torah come back to the covenants. Now, in that time, you also then have David coming, and the people were sitting there saying, you know, look, nothing personal, God, but why can't we have a king like everybody else? Now, what I find interesting is, why did they have to word it like that? Why didn't they just go back to Moses' writings, where Moses says, from God when I put a king over you, and God goes on and tells him about it. Why wouldn't they even pursue it with the idea that, Lord, you promised us a king, right? Read the story of Abraham uh, when when he gets down to the third son, right? You know, Isaac, and Isaac is sitting there, no, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, is blessing his sons. And he blesses Judah with the idea that Judah will reign. Look, folks, just hold people accountable for what they say. The Lord said it. I need it. Let's do it. Yes? That's the idea of responding by faith. But what was interesting was, and we just saw this going through 1 Samuel, was the people didn't sit there and say, Lord, you talked about a king. I'm thinking right now might be a good time. What do you say, Lord? What do you say? Can can uh, we pray about this? Can we, can we talk about this? Can we pursue this? But no, their goal was, look, I want a king like the other nations. Well, what's the difference between the two? I think Dave Brown's been nailing it. God's purpose for a king is to protect and serve. To be out in front of the people. To lead the people. The world's view of a king is... Who can I get to do my bidding? Who can I get to pay my bills? How many dupes can I get out there to die for my cause? That's the difference between the two. And that's a huge difference. Now, the other thing that's interesting when you deal with um, uh, the idea of the king is the idea that God wanted us to have to wait for one. Why? What are we waiting for? When we go into these covenants, you find that there is a near application in which God is giving us a pledge as to his promise working out, but it ultimately rests on him to complete things ultimately. A lot of times when we look through Scripture and we look at these um, uh, promises given, uh, I I like the analogy that's been given, the fact that you can have... A promise given, which you have a near application given, a good example is um, uh, the idea of a Redeemer or an anointed one coming. Take when uh, Cyrus in uh, Babylon, here I've got a guy, not even a Jew, not even a believer, but he's God's Messiah, going (laughs) to rescue Israel. And he's defined as God's Messiah. And it's like, Lord, uh, wait a minute. Can I talk to you a minute? You know, he's not a Jew. He's not related to David. He doesn't even believe in you. Lord, nothing personal, but you can't find somebody else, right? Can you imagine all the Jews praying at that time? It's like, help me out here. But you had this picture of him, and then it talked about glorious things to happen that was telling us about someone off in the, in the future. Well, when you're looking down towards the future of what's going to happen, a lot of these mountain tops look like they're right next to each other. But it's just like when you're driving through the Rockies or this and that, sometimes you find out from one mountain to the other, right? I mean, how many times have you been driving, or, or a lot of times when you're flying into Portland, you look and you go, wow, Mount St. Helens is a lot bigger than Rainier, right? Was Mount St. Helens bigger than Rainier? No. But boy, at some points they they almost look the same simply because of the distance between. And quite often, we need to define what is now and what is later. Now, as these prophets came up, especially the latter prophets, you had it started really well, that office defined by Elijah and Elisha, and you have all these miracles going on with these guys, but it sets up an office in which God keeps wanting to call the people back. But what's interesting is, is there comes a point, especially, well, especially, absolutely, when you get to Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and the worst thing that could ever happen, happened to Israel, which was the Babylonian captivity. And and in that, you have a promise of a new covenant. And how this new covenant comes around, even the word in Hebrew means something to replace something else. Now, wait a minute. Does that mean that the New Covenant replaces everything of the Old? Well, that's how we've defined our Bible. God never called the Old Testament the Old Testament and the New Testament the New Testament. Have you ever been in churches where they sit there and say, oh, well, you know, study hard your New Testament. Read it through. Get to know it. Memorize it and this and that. And then you talk to them about the Old Testament and they say, well, read it through. It's good history and that, but don't study it like the Old that's old stuff. You go to the book of Hebrews, and the book of Hebrews sits there and uses language that sounds very much that way, and a lot of your modern translations make it sound like, oh, now that this has come, there's no purpose to the rest of this. Well, my trouble is this. My trouble is this. There's history yet to be written, folks. There's things yet to be done that we know of. Now, on that list of progression, progressive revelation, We have the latter prophets, and in that we have the the call to the covenant and, and the promise of the new. But does the new covenant happen in the Old Testament? No. My trouble is, I get to the New Testament, the time of Christ, the Lord and his apostles are performing all kinds of things, I've got all kinds of new stuff going on, and the call now is to baptism in the new covenant in his blood. <clears throat> and I, I'm kind of going, well, w- wait a minute, What does this happen? Because when I go to Jeremiah 31, the promises are given to Israel and to Judah. They're not given to the church. There's no vision of the church at all. And not just that, if you read Jeremiah 31, which we hopefully will at some point, in that... It tells me that you don't even have to tell your neighbor about the Lord because he knows him. And yet, the New Covenant starts off in the New Testament with a commission, one that we still take quite seriously. Go and tell the nations, tell every tongue and tribe about our Lord. And yet, the New Covenant given to Israel says, You don't have to do any of that. They know. They know already. Well, how is this, how does all this jam and put together? Starts with Abraham. Starts with Genesis 15. Verses 1 to 7 give you, or 1 to 5 in Genesis 15, gives you a very simple story in which God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And in that you're going to be blessed in land, in seed, in prosperity and the blessings you receive you are going to manifest in blessings to every man every nation now in the middle of that moses stops and he says abraham believed god and it was reckoned unto him for righteousness now a lot of people read this story chronologically god said this he believed it and so he goes on and makes a covenant that's the rest of the chapter no Everything that God says in 1 to 5 he has been saying since chapter 12. What we're saying is we're tying the promises into a covenant in which, again, why does God need to make a covenant with man? A covenant is an agreement between two. And he does it in such a cultural way that it's it's shocking. In fact, in a lot of ways, it doesn't make any sense. Now let's look at that. Remember, verses. if you compare verse 1 with verse 7, you cover the same issue. If you go to verse 2 and 3, that goes right to what verse 8 talks about. When you go to verses 4 and 5, it's going to cover 9 through 21. And um, basically, when you're talking about what God originally promised in verse 1, He says, I'm gonna be a shield to you and I'm gonna make your name great. Now what's funny with that is the nations around were defining themselves by their power and by creating their own name. Abraham says, I don't need any name but what you give me. And then again we we talked about the, the play on the name of Abraham that God does. and What a tough guy to grow up with with such a name, right? Now. With this, what's amazing is when I read verses four and five, it says, Then behold, the word the Lord came in and says, This man will not be your heir, but the one who comes forth from your own body shall be your heir. And he took him outside and says, Now look towards the heaven, count the stars, if you're able to count them. He says, So shall your descendants be. And again, this has been the promise for years now, and Abraham doesn't have any kids. It ain't happening. So the Lord wants to define the fact that, don't worry, you can trust me. And how does he do that? Verse 9. The Lord said to him, bring me an old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a pigeon. Now, notice, God just says, bring these. Now Abraham, without having to say a thing, does a little bit more than that. What does he do? Look what he does. Then he brought all these and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abraham drove them away. Now, hold it. The Lord says, bring me some animals. Now you young folks, if your mom said bring in the cat, <laughs> and you brought the cat in and chopped it in two and laid it on the table, how do you think she'd do? All right. The, the thing of it is, is in God asking for these animals, He was asking Abraham if you want to strike a deal. In ancient times, if you wanted to set up a boundary, or you wanted to set up a, a, a really serious business, or political, or uh, defensive contract with somebody, you would sign your name to it. And the way you would sign your name to it basically was, you would take an animal, you'd chop this animal in two and lay, lay the parts out. Then after making it known to whoever witnesses are around what the agreement is, the two of you pass between those pieces. Now what do you think that's supposed to signify? The agreement. The agreement what kind of conditions? Equal. Equal conditions that boil down to what? If I don't do what I promise to do, I'd like that. Exactly. The, the idea of the picture is so you can do unto me. It's the covenant of blood. It's a covenant that says, this is it. This is how serious this is. Now, the neat side of it was, once you passed through, you took those pieces, you cooked it, and you had a feast. Because now you're at peace with whoever, because you have an agreement that you stand by. But you did not just walk into a contract haphazard. You stepped into a contract quite set. Now, what's interesting here is, God tells him to bring the animals. He does, knows exactly what he's doing in as much as as he walks out there, cuts the animals in two and lays them out. Now what's amazing here So so how did you do a pre-velpic yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You want my opinion? <laughs> None of you report this to the pastor. I think you take the bull. And you simply cut the nuts off and put that on this side. <laughs> wow. I never said fantastic. that, <laughs> no. Well, the purpose of pre-nuts is simply because you, you want something, but you don't want to uh, risk everything, right? Yeah, right. yeah, yeah it was fantastic. Just in case, yeah. yes, yes. So, what, what's interesting is, that if you want an example of how Abraham acted by faith, he is willing to go into a contract with God in which he still doesn't know what the terms are, but he is stating, whatever God's terms are, I'm willing to put my life on, my line, on the line. What kind of faith is that? The Abrahamic faith, which when you get to the New Testament, is there any better example of faith given to us? But I love these people who sit there and say, well, Abraham just believed that God was going to give him kids and that's all it took to get him saved. Is that all? Abraham was willing to agree to whatever God's terms were with the idea that, Lord, if I don't keep it, you can kill me. I deserve it. Now, that puts a different spin on the Abrahamic faith, doesn't it? But you want something even more as far as a good twist in the story. Read what happens. It says in verse 12, Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God puts him to sleep. But how restful of a sleep. Why fill him with fear and terror? How do you think he went to sleep? uh, uh, Again, you're going to make an uh, agreement. You're going to sign a contract. God had you draw up the terms of the contract, but you don't know what the contract is, right? And now you go to sleep with the idea that how confident do you think Abraham was that whatever God asked, he'd be able to fulfill? Well, let's see. When God told him to go into Egypt because there was a famine, and the Pharaoh saw his uh, wife, and thought she was hot. He was worried that he was going to get himself killed if they thought they were married. So he introduces them as his sister, right? Which technically, technically wasn't a lie, right? Not once or twice. He did that. Okay, but the thing of it is, is how confident do you think he was that whatever God laid on him, he'd be able to do? Not. Abraham was no idiot. No different than Peter in saying, Lord, you know I love you. I just, you're asking for unconditional love and all I could tell you is, I really like you a lot. But it's the same Peter who turns around and says, Lord, you know, everybody else is bugging off on you because you're talking about us eating your flesh and drinking your blood and I don't understand. But where else do I go? Who else has the words of life? It goes right back to what Job said. Job saying, you know, I'm pretty miserable right now. Things are not the best right now, right? But the one thing I do know is that if he slays me, there you go, oh, man. Sorry, buddy. I'm glad you weren't working. If he slays me, all I know is, I will see my Redeemer in my flesh. Because the same guy who can take my life can give it right back to me and make me like I've never been. Yeah? Where do they get this kind of faith? This is where when people talk to me about how simple it is to get saved, it's just hard to get sanctified. I sit there and I kind of go, I don't think you understand Salvation isn't cheap. It costs you everything. Oh, become a Christian. You'll, you'll sleep well at night. You know, one of the things that drove me nuts in getting saved, I when I wanted to get saved as a young man, I had my terms. I want the Lord to take care of this and this and this and this. And I don't even want to discuss things like hell or any of that kind of stuff. Just... Fix my laundry list, right? Well, trouble with that was, I go and I give my heart to the Lord, I sit there and and I try and pursue things and this and that, and what I found was, that laundry list just didn't quite go away. But the weight of it was worse and worse and worse. And every time I thought those things, and every time I did those things, it hurt worse, and worse, and worse. And I finally sat down with someone who I greatly respect in the faith, and I sat down and said, I don't want this anymore. I wanted relief from this stuff. And luckily, the guy was very wise. And he sat there and says, oh, so all you want is the punishment, God. You don't want to change your heart. You don't want to be any different. See, a dead body doesn't feel anything. You give somebody life and now it hurts. Yeah? He goes to bed terrified because he knows his weakness. But what happens? Let's finish the story here. (coughs) Verse 13, God said to Abraham, Know for certain that your descendants will be strange will be strangers in a land that's not there, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years." Now hold it, just stop right there. Up until now, he's promised them a bunch of kids, promised them the land, promised them everything else. He wants to give him a definite answer here as to being it, and the first thing he tells him is, don't worry about it. Your descendants are going to be like strangers. They're going to be illegal aliens. And then from there, they're going to go and be enslaved for 400 years. I mean, if I'm Abraham, I just kind of, you know, that's it. I mean, let's get out of here. What's the point? You've been promising me this stuff and promising me And now this is what I get. Well, what's he talking about? He's talking about the children of Israel going to Egypt under Joseph. That wasn't an accident, folks. It was no accident that Joseph was thrown in a pit. No accident anything. All of it was planned. Why? Let's finish the story. Verse 14. But I will also judge that nation whom they will serve, and afterwards they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity, iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Now folks, you just got the whole history of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, going into Deuteronomy. Promised here, 400 years before it happens. And it's part of a promise. Part of a covenant. Let's go on. Verse 17, It came about when the sun had set, that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between the pieces. Now what is that? Abraham's asleep. A torch in an oven passes between. That's God doing his half. Isn't that him walking through? That is God walking through. So everything that's been promised here, God promised to make him go into slavery, God promised all these things, but remember the first part of the chapter and all of chapter 12 and all the other promises that they will possess the land, yes? From the Euphrates to, the, to uh, the ocean. All that has been promised. And that that promise will not stop. It will be eternal as long as the sun rises and the sun sets. The terminology is very, very clear. Now, with all that... What's the idea of it being an oven and a torch? Well, remember the second half of what I told you. These meetings were normally about. Someone's got to cook that meat, right? And the idea is that once the agreement is made, you sit up and sit and go, "Wow, this is awesome! Let's party!" Now, isn't it interesting when you get to the law? God never calls for a fast. He calls for three feasts. Passover, tabernacles, right? I love tabernacles. You go and your camp in the backyard? You do s'mores. It's awesome. <laughs> the whole idea was God wanted us to work with him in the idea of going for what is good and to enjoy life. I love what one of my favorite uh, descriptions of the kingdom is the idea that every man is beneath his vine and under his fig tree, right? Can you picture me just laying under the grapevine, just peeling the grapes, right? And just popping them in, sitting under my fig tree, just eating nice, big, fat, plump figs, right? I mean, people ask me what heaven's like. That's it, baby. Leave me alone. Let me just eat my figs and eat this. That's what it's all about. <coughs> now... Finishing the story, verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. To your descendants, literally the word there is seed, to your seed I have given this land, from the river Egypt as far as the great river Euphrates, the Kenite, the Kenzanite, the Kadmonite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Riphrim, the Amorite, the, the Canaanite, the gergeshite and the Jebusite. He gave them the people of the land also. Was that for slaves? It's not defined. See, instantly, instantly, I'll be honest with me, how many of you people thought instantly what we're talking about there is slavery? Oh, come on. None of you thought that? <clears throat> if someone sat there and says, you can have all these land, all the way from the Euphrates, Eu- Euphrates, In the middle of Iraq, all the way to Egypt, all this land is yours, and you get everybody inside of it. Well, what's amazing to me is that most people think about, especially during this time of nation building, who I can rule, who I can have serve me, what goes on with Israel when it's in Egypt. It goes from being a a, a precious people, descendants of Joseph, who helped save us from the famine, to what? There's so many of them, let's put them to work. Right, whole different take. But what's interesting is when Israel is called to come out of Egypt, what are they called to be? A kingdom of priests. Well, who needs priests? People need priests. Priests talk to people for God. Well, why does all of Israel have to be a kingdom of priests? You know why? Because there's Amorites and Girgashites. And Canaanites in this world. They were not to despise these people. God never wanted that these people would be destroyed. But the idea was that, you know what, I'm giving them time to respond too, and it's not happening. One of the reasons why they can't fulfill the promises right then and there is the idea that their sins are not yet complete. We look at that as like, oh, the Lord's going to wait until it's really bad. They just dump it all out on them, right? No. The Lord is working with these people with the idea of be prepared. Why do you think when the children of Israel come to the land, even Rahab the harlot knows what the gospel is? She doesn't understand the details, but she says, you know, I know that God is with these people. God is always working with these people. The gospel is being preached. But like the New Testament tells us, sometimes it just takes feet and a mouth to get it there, yes? Your responsibility in getting it there. But let's look at the story. The story is, these promises are true, and I make a covenant in which if anybody defaults, anybody defaults on this, I will take death on me so if you were to talk about whether it's a conditional or a conditional or an unconditional what would you call it unconditional on abraham's side yeah, yeah. now you notice all the smart people with good theology, I'm bolting out of the room. <laughs> Doesn't it make you wonder? No, but back to your point. All the conditions are laid on God. Same as with the Noach covenant. Absolutely true. That is why when Paul uses this example and talks about the promise made, it's 400 years before the law is given. Paul's point is, the law does not nullify the grace given in the promise. Now, what he's talking about, Paul, is the oral law and traditions that the Jews made of it. He's not talking about removing the whole Mosaic covenant, because it's part of what we've got to see. My trouble is this. Turn to chapter 17. And let's look at what you just brought up. In chapter 17... Starting in verse 3. Abram fell on his face, and God talked to him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. You will be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be exalted father, or father of many. I will name you father of a multitude. For I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you. Kings will come forth from you. Now, this is nothing new. This is all the same covenant, yeah? But it goes on. God states His side. I will establish my covenant between me and you and and your descendants after you uh, throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and your descendants after you the land which you are sojourning in, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. God further said to Abraham, Now, as for you... Oh, now this is where it gets good. Now, this is interesting. This is a term that comes up after the agreement. How binding is this term? On the promise. Well, let's read what the term is. Let's read what the term is. You tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. <laughs> now as for you you shall keep my covenant and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you every male among you shall be circumcised hold it me uh, me. Uh, now realize this is the father of the whole Jewish nation so it's not improper for me to sit there and say "What." You want what? The terms are set, Lord. You didn't mention nothing about this, right? But, he goes on, he goes on. Not just him. And you shall be circumcised in your flesh, uh, the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Every male who is among you, eight days old, shall be circumcised throughout your generations a servant who is born in your house, and it goes on, it says a foreigner, anybody who wishes to identify with you, or be part of you, will also be part of this. And then he goes on, uh, verse 14, but an uncircumcised male, who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people, and he has broken my covenant. Oh, Lord, Lord, Lyle, conditional or unconditional? just change the rules. Now, here's an honest man, but that's not what I asked you. <laughs> conditional or unconditional? i say it's still unconditional. What aspect of it's unconditional? Well, the aspect that he is <laughs> offering, and he us, and the will be less, and the whole Old. He's as smart as he looks. <laughs> the whole point is, is the covenant itself is unconditional, but the willingness on Abraham's side to personally apply it to himself is conditional. Believe me, in order to be circumcised at this stage of it, how old's Abraham at this point? <laughs> Now men, you know, there's two things that continually grow on you as you get older. Your earlobes and your what? (laughs) Foreskin. With that, he's over 100 years old. I would have sat there and said, okay, the 8 year olds, go ahead. Right? (laughs) As for me? No, but the point is this. The point is this. And women, I notice how silent you are how many women want to stand up and sit and say I want equal rights (laughs) Lord cut me too oh ain't going there right oh but there are certain cultures who sit and say our women are so holy even they go for circumcision and it's forced on women too (whistles) pretty weird world we live in huh the whole point of this is this is an act of faith in which God is saying and, and picture this He just changed his name that he's been having to live with for 70-something years from father of many with no kids to father of a multitude with still no kids. (laughs) Well, Isaac's around, right? Or not Isaac, Ishmael, right? But but with that, he's going to be the father of many. He says, I'm going to make you the father of many. And it goes all into the story about how, you know, Abraham laughs and Sarah laughs and all this stuff because it's like, dude, nothing personal, Lord, but we're kind of old, can you get fresh fruit from a shriveled up what, right? Kind of a thing. And it, it's comical. So the Lord says, No, I'm going to keep the promise. Trim that thing. Trim that thing. The whole thing makes you kind of go, Lord, what are you talking about? Ah. But if you go further into the laws, and especially when you get to Deuteronomy, what is it, chapter 10? where Moses wants the people to understand the heart of the law, he says, circumcise your heart to the Lord. Learn to curb yourself. Okay, so what, what is that? I mean, now we're getting into some good stuff. Sorry. <laughs> so, what, what is circumcision of the heart? He's not cutting it off, what is it? Okay, first and foremost, first and foremost, understand, define what the heart is. See, in the ancients, especially when you're dealing with the Old Testament, emotions were not felt in your heart. They were in your gut. Quite often, it sits in in fact, I love that part in, um, I don't love it, but I find it comical. In the um, uh, Song of Solomon, Right? when it says that uh, the bridegroom is waiting for the bride to enter the bridal chamber. And it says that she enters in. Well, a modern interpretation would say that his heart leaped. Right? Because that is what we would refer to that as. But in the Hebrew, do you know what it literally says? His bowels moved. Well, when you read this in the original language and you don't understand how language works, you kind of sit there and go, dude, did you just blow it or what? (laughs) Right? (laughs) This is the last place you want to, you know. (laughs) But in the Hebrew, your emotions are felt in your gut. When you came across a child just killed, where do you feel it? It just tears you up, right? I don't know if you've ever had to work through tragedies, but to have to sit there and work through something, and especially when you talk to, you know, about firefighters and stuff that they've dealt with, the idea that these guys will go in and do whatever has to be. Um, Charlie Campbell, you know, I was out where uh, he was on call and it was out in front of my house and it was not a pretty sight and this and that, and I, you know, after we, they got everybody cleaned up in that. I'm over in the bushes. I'm losing my lunch. And I come back and I talk to Charlie. I said, man, how do you do it? And he says, you know, you learn to deal with it. And he says, but, you know, it'll stay with them for a week. Longer a lifetime. My, my daughter, the nurse. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Our daughter. I used to always try and gross out my kids, you know, with bad jokes. and like, <laughs> Once they become nurses... Mm-hmm. All deals are off. I don't want to hear it. You nurses, I'm telling you. Oh my gosh. I I can't go there. But see, when you're talking about the heart, this is a hard thing. Because the heart was seen as the center of the man. When you get to Ephesians, and, and Paul says, you know, he's talking about all these great things. Oh, to know the inheritance you have in the saints... To know the power of what you possess as Christians in the church. To understand the works of Christ. Paul's going all into this. In, in the middle of going into the second chapter of Ephesians, he's so caught up in it. He has to stop and he, he starts praying. And he says, oh, I pray that you would know the, the, the power of God. That you would understand the heart of that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Now, what's he talking about there? To the ancients, the mind was where you wrestled with things, or you understood things, and the heart is where you put it together, because the heart revealed your will, what you want to do, or what you do. So the heart of it isn't, oh, oh, I feel this way. No, 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 that's the other end of it. And it's not like, well, I think things should be this way. No, no, no. That's the other end of it. Paul does mention the idea that be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, but again, he's talking to Romans at the time, who again, with their influence from the Greeks, was the idea that with our minds we can settle everything, we can know everything. You you can discipline yourself, be good Stoic, you know, Epicurean, whatever your philosophy you can do. And we have the same thing today if we can just be of a certain politic, if we can be of a certain economy, if we can be of a certain thing, it curbs these things. Yeah, it curbs the things you see, but what about the things you don't? What about the things you take for granted? What about the things of cultures that you don't even understand, and you want to force these things on? Oh man, you think you're so smart in seeing it all. Well, God says the heart must be changed. And this is very interesting, because this is the first time this is brought up. And the idea of circumcising your heart is, cut back your will. Moses, we're told, is the most humble man ever existed. Why? Well, first of all, let's see how well he kept the law. Remember the story in Exodus about the uh, uh, um, midwives, right? Saving the babies, Good, faithful women they were, this and that. Well, how faithful were they to the law? How old was Moses when he was put in the creek? Well, read it next time. Three months. When he was pulled out of the creek, they didn't know what nation he was from, did they? How well did his family keep the Abrahamic covenant? They didn't. Because if they would have, they would have known that baby was a Hebrew. And he would have been killed. Now, later on, when Moses you know, discovers he's a Hebrew, he's raised as an Egyptian prince, he didn't have to go back, but he gave it up for what? And something he was passionate about. He even killed a man over the fact that a Jew was being abused. Pretty amazing. Well, it goes on, and when Moses gives his account in Exodus 6 of his heritage... Who does he claim heritage from? Levi, Judah, Simeon. Those are the only brothers mentioned. Why? The biggest weasels of the bunch. And then he has to repeat twice or three times through that whole narrative the fact that this is me and Aaron. This is even us. God takes even us. We didn't keep the Abrahamic covenant. He's called me. Moses doesn't get circumcised until when? When? He's almost 80 years old. He's already got a wife in that. He's living fine. He's got sheep. He's doing well. Why do I want to go back and put up with these people's problems, right? But he goes back. See, the idea of hanging on to things, very important. Now, you ask about conditionality. What was a condition was to step out in faith, to do something. Does God call all of us to be circumcised? Come on, man, stand up. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. Come on, come on. No. Stick with the heart. Stick with the heart. Oh, we didn't get anyone, did we? No, we didn't get anyone. What I want you to look at, and in working through this, let me explain this to you, so maybe you can use it. You have God walking through these covenants. And especially as you get to Sinai and that, Sinai becomes the most conditional. But the purpose of it is that they will be a witness either by their discipline, how they're disciplined, or how they're blessed. And you find out that these people are disciplined all over the place. But then comes a man like David. We just went through 1 Samuel. Measure David's life against the law. He's... Ten years old out running sheep, he's killing bears and lions. I love these people who sit to say, this, Oh, David was just such, a, such a guy. No. The covenant states that if you walk in it, you will have power even over the beasts. It's a promise from God. Yes? David knew the covenants and walked in them. That's why when he walks in the camp and sees Goliath out just screaming and moaning, right? Making fun of all Israel, and all Israel scared. What was David's thing? The Lord's name is at stake. He steps out in the covenant. It states it. One Jew could take on thousands if he walks in God's ways. So David walks right in, boom. Later on, when David has to walk into the middle of the camp to cut off the rope, not the bit in the tent, but later on, well no, he didn't cut the rope the second time, did he? But the point being is, what gave David the Hertzbah to walk into a camp like that, right? The point was, if God wants me dead, he wants me dead. My time is over. But I'm not going to let the enemies of God change what I am. I'm going to go where I need to go. I'm going to do what I'm going to need to do. And in that, look at how David walks through this. So then when you get to 2 Samuel 7, and probably the biggest pivot point in all of Scripture, until Jesus comes, right? You, and Especially with the covenants, you have a promise given to David of a seed. And what's interesting in that is, it doesn't even talk about a covenant until you get to Psalm 89, and then you get to Psalm 89, and you kind of go, wow, this is amazing. Well, let me let you in on something else. New Covenant. i already told you, the New Covenant had nothing to do with the church. So why don't we appropriate it? You know why? Because the Jews were so anxious for Messiah to come at the time of Jesus. So ready. Remember Simeon and others, right? Baptism. Where in the Old Testament do you get baptized? It's not there. They never got wet. What kind of a Baptist are you? No, 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 no. No, no. It's never there. Do you know why John's baptism was so shocking? He was asking Jews to do what only Gentiles had to. A Gentile who wanted to become a Jew. Had to be immersed in water with the idea that now we are so clean we can make a Jew out of you. When Jesus went to Nicodemus and, and Nicodemus went to him, right? Jesus says, You, a teacher of Israel, and you don't know about being born again? Have you not read Ezekiel? Have you not read Jeremiah? The promise of a new heart? You want to know what it is to be born again? Read Ezekiel. Read Jeremiah. It's a new heart, and it goes back to the idea. Psalm 51, three weeks ago. Dave was preaching it, right? Why do you think when David cries out in the middle of that psalm, create in me a new heart, oh God? It's the idea that I can't do it unless you do. And Jesus is the one who fills it all. So the covenants build and move towards it. Now, as Dave has time, he's got a few weeks coming up in which he can't teach again uh, in August and then um, uh, later in November. I want to try and cover more of these, but realize that how you handle the covenants, it defines your whole hermeneutic on how you read Scripture. Because if you make these things law that you keep or don't keep to get saved... Your legalist ain't going to happen. If you sit here and say one cuts off and, and is no longer important, you don't know the plan of God. So with that, any questions? A book. Very good. It's not necessarily on covenant. It's on the promise plan. It talks about the idea of a single thread through scripture by Walter Kaiser. I have extra copies. Anyone wants to borrow it? Please come. You can you can take it home. But the, the point is... is Don't stop your pursuit of understanding the mind of God. And the covenants are a great place. Let's go. Father, we thank you for the day. I feel like Joshua, Lord, just want the day to to last forever, cause the sun to stop. But Lord, we're here. I pray, Lord, that you'll keep people's hearts and minds open as to grow and to know you, to seek your face, knowing that it's the sure destruction. But Father, if it's to your glory, who am I? With that help us to just find out and and find those here in the church that we can get answers from? And and people who need encouraging, Father, help us to seek out and do that, knowing that exercising our faith and sharing Jesus Christ begins here. And then we can take it to the rest of the world. Bless the service that goes forth this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.